Amen. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text today. We are going to be in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to read together verses 19 to 25. And I invite you to feel, please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. This is the holy word of God for us, his people. God's word says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear a word from you, open our hearts to receive it, open our minds to understand it. We pray you would write your eternal truth upon our hearts today. That you would mark our souls as those who have been in the presence of a God who opens his mouth and speaks his life-changing word to us. Would you conform us and our church to this word? Would you conform each one of us in our own lives to what you have said in your scriptures? May we worship you as we both preach and receive the word of God today. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We continue in our series on biblical reformed worship. Last week, we considered the relationship between Scripture and tradition in worship and how all things in worship should be under the control of the Scriptures The Bible alone tells us what the elements of worship must be. These elements are fixed by God's commands and cannot be altered. Now, how we enact and observe and perform those elements are matters of freedom. The forms and the circumstances of worship are developed by the church, and these constitute our worship ceremonies which become over the years our worship traditions. We also considered last week that our freedom in crafting our own ceremonies, our own traditions in worship, it's not unlimited. Our ceremonies must be biblical. Our traditions must be subordinate to Scripture. 
We saw that this means the forms and circumstances of our public worship should meet three criteria. Number one, they must not contradict Scripture. Number two, they must never compete with Scripture as though they had the same level of authority or were commanded by God. And number three, they must conform to biblical standards and sanctions that give warrant to our worship. We then looked at three ways the Bible gives us warrant for our worship. Three ways the Bible sets the standards and sanctions for our ceremonies. And they each started with an E. Number one, expectations. Biblical expectations. These are the rules and directions and guidelines for how we should conduct scripture or how we should conduct worship in Scripture. Second was examples. These are the precedents and the patterns that serve as models that we can follow, that can inform how we craft our traditions. And then third was emphases. Expectations, examples, and third last week was emphases. That's the, what, what's the priorities of the Bible when we come into worship? What does the Bible want us to do more? What should the focus be on? The, our priorities, our values, the rankings of importance among what we do in worship. If we, if we scour the Scriptures and we go through the Bible and, we, and we're on the lookout for what are the expectations God has for us in worship? What are some examples and some patterns of biblical worship we can follow? And what are some emphases? What's the Bible want us to emphasize more and emphasize less? I had a seminary professor who said we should be as balanced as the Bible is balanced. So if the Bible spends a lot of time emphasizing something, we should emphasize it. Because if it's in the Bible... That's good. If the Bible says don't focus on that, then we should not spend all our time on the things the Bible says don't emphasize as much. Let's try to be as balanced as the Bible is balanced. And the remainder of last week's sermon then focused on Paul's five rules or five expectations, that first category, for worship from 1 Corinthians 14. And here are the five we looked at. All things must be done for edification. Second, all things must be done for the learning and encouragement of the people, of the congregation. Third, all things must be harmonious. Worship shouldn't be confusing, distracting, or chaotic. Number four, all things must be in connection and continuity with the lowercase c, Catholic Church. Paul says... Corinthians, look at the other churches. Look at all the other churches and see what they're doing. You're, you're trying to do Lone Ranger Church. You're, you're just ignoring everywhere else the Word of God has gone. You're ignoring everything else the other churches are doing. And you're just doing Christianity as though you're making it up on your own. And not realizing that God is doing a work in other churches... And we can look back and say, God's been doing a work for 2,000 years. He's the Lord and sovereign over all church history. Like, even before Billy Graham, like way back there, old stuff. (laughs) The early church, they were looking at the same Bible you were. And trying to worship and interpret and read that Bible. And we shouldn't act like we're the only people the Bible's ever come to. And nobody got it right till the forks came along. (laughs) Or until I came along. Or until you came along. The church has been guided by the Holy Spirit through history. And, of course, not everything is right because we're reformed. That means something was needed to be reformed, right? The church is not infallible. 
But we should pay attention and try to maintain some ties and connections with the rest of the Catholic Church. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And lowercase c, Catholic, just means the church everywhere, the universal church. So let's keep them in mind. So that's number four. And then the fifth one last week was all things must be done decently and in order. Decently, meaning properly, fittingly, appropriately, suitably, becomingly. And then in good order, regimented, ordered. It's the kind of word you use for how the army lines up to approach the battlefield. Be in battle formation for worship. Man your stations. That kind of order is what Paul wants us to do. And he tells us about these five expectations. He says, guys, these five expectations, these rules for worship... They're not just his own private opinion, and they're not just his own personal preference. Paul says these are divine expectations for worship. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 and 38. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, He's not recognized. In other words, Paul says, I'm telling you right now, if you ignore this stuff, you're disqualified. That person's disqualified, and that person's worship gets disqualified. We don't want to have disqualified worship. There is worship that God doesn't accept, that God doesn't like, and God doesn't want us to bring Him. And so we need to follow biblical parameters for our worship. That's what we've been focusing on. This morning... We are going to take Paul's final expectation, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, do all things decently and in order, and we're going to look at it more closely today. Now, Paul says, quoting the verse again, all things should be done decently and in order. But you see, that doesn't answer all of our questions, right? Paul doesn't specify what that order is looks like. That's why it's just an expectation. It's not an element. He doesn't tell us, here's what the order has to be. So there's some freedom here, but we still want our freedom to be guided by Scripture. So we have expectations that help us do that, and now we need to fill in the gaps or fill in the blanks, so to speak. What should that order be? We fill it in by going to the next of those three categories. Expectations, and then number two is the examples of Scripture, the patterns and the precedents that the Bible gives us to help us figure out what the order should look like. That's where I want us to go today as we talk about Reformed liturgy. In order to put our worship in order, we must turn to biblical examples. And in our passage this morning, we find a pattern in Scripture that gives us an idea of how to put our worship in order how to arrange our ceremonies in a way that conforms to that biblical pattern. So that's where we're going to go. But before we consider the pattern itself, we need to step back and ask a broader question. What is an order of worship? What is this regimentation or arrangement of worship? So let's, let's begin with this question first. <clears throat> I 
The book of Hebrews is often described as an apostolic tract that attempts to convince Jewish Christians to remain Christian rather than to go back to non-Christian Judaism. That's normally how it's viewed. And while, there's, while that is true in part, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that's the only thing Hebrews is trying to do, just trying to get Jewish Christians not to go back to their non-Christian Judaism. Part of that larger project is this laser-like focus in Hebrews on worship. Hebrews is just as much a treatise on worship as it is a tract on apostasy. Hebrews talks about worship extensively by relating Christ to the Old Testament tabernacle and sacrificial system. And as we see how these two things are, are played off against each other in Hebrews, liturgy comes to the front. That word liturgy is the, was what Hebrews calls worship. Now, just like the word baptize and uh, other words we've talked about here before that come straight out of Greek into English without being translated, they just get, the Greek word just gets turned into an English word with no translation. That's what's happened with the word liturgy. In Greek, it's just liturgia, liturgia. And it just, you can almost hear it, liturgia, liturgy. Just comes straight in. We just swap out the Greek words for the, or the Greek letters for the English letters, and we call it English. But what does it mean? This word liturgy means, it's just a normal, it's not a spiritual word, it's just a normal old Greek word that means a public service. A public service. And so you would have the person who would lead the liturgia would be the liturgos. He's the efficient, he's the official who conducts the public service. And so this could be anything. This could be a a benefactor of a city, a wealthy man who wants to uh, give funds to help the the local Jewish community build a synagogue and get his name engraved on some of the stones in honor of of so-and-so who dedicated this synagogue. And that's a public service. Or it could be for building an aqueduct or putting up a new shrine for a god or goddess or whatever it might be. But it also could be explicitly religious where he he could fund or officiate a ceremony where they do a public worship of the gods. Public worship of the gods. And these things, these sorts of liturgies were public worship services of gods and goddesses. And these things included public adoration, praise, and honor and supplication of the deities, and they almost always included some form of sacrifice. It could be drink offerings or meal offerings, some sort of libation or some sort of animal sacrifice, but all ancient worship was involved the sacrifice of animals. And this is what they would do. They would have a, be out in the streets, it'd be in public, and they would, in their city, they would honor their gods. And the person who presided over these ceremonies was the liturgist, the liturgos, who presided over the liturgia, the service. That's the idea that Hebrews grabs and applies to worship. He says that's what we do. The Old Testament had a liturgy. It had this public form of worship that included sacrifices. So, of course, the author to Hebrews naturally grabs this word that would be familiar to his readers So when we come and we do liturgy, 
as a church, we are gathering together to do that act of public honor to not the gods, but to our one God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of and Father of Jesus. We're here to worship Him. Liturgy is the public worship service of the true and living God for us, the one God, where we come in public as an assembly to give adoration and praise and honor and to offer up our prayers and supplications and to do so on the basis of sacrifice. Liturgy is connected to this word that Paul uses for uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 14.40 when he says that we are to do all things decently and in order. Liturgy is connected to this idea of having an order. An order for how you do your liturgy. It refers to the set order of conducting that public service. We, why must this order, this liturgy, be decent, according to Paul? Why does it need to be decent or appropriate or proper or fitting? And this part is key. The order needs to be decent or fitting to the occasion because liturgy is ultimately about how you and I approach a holy God. Liturgy is a word that clues us into the idea of drawing near, to approach. Our liturgy is our way of approach into the presence of a holy God. Hebrews 10.22, in our passage at the beginning of 22, it says, Let us draw near. Let us draw near. This is a passage in, in Hebrews 10 that's all about our worship. We are to draw near to God. And in Hebrews, drawing near is always about how the worshiper approaches the holy God. We draw near to Him. So we must do so appropriately. Fitting to who He is. To what kind of God we think we're coming to worship today. We must approach Him on His terms and acknowledge who He is. And see that He is not some mere deity of, of the wind or of the sea. Or a god or goddess of earth or of love or of fertility or of the earth or of crops or of medicine. This is the God who created all things. The God who spoke and universes, the universe came into being, worlds came into being. This is the God who knows every star by name, who calls each one of them and says, Tonight you will shine, and my creatures will look up and see my handiwork in the heavens, and they will know that I am God over all things. I own all the earth. I am the Lord of all things. Liturgy is about how do we come before Him? <laughs> how do we come into His presence if that's who He is? We come and we approach and we draw near. We want to get close to that. That God of infinite glory and majesty and holiness. Oh, we better come decently. With some decorum. With some appropriateness. Come in the way that His glory deserves. Liturgy tells us how we do that. Liturgy is all about how we do that. What's the order of service, the public service, that we use to approach a holy God? It's serious business. It's not just, it's not just the ho-hum order of the, of, the, of the service. But it's about, if we're really coming before God, how do we approach Him? So that's 
first point of our sermon. What is liturgy? It's how we approach a holy God. Second, coming now to our passage. Let us consider how our liturgy ought to be a reformed liturgy. The topic of our sermon, reformed liturgy. Now, I certainly believe that our worship should be reformed in the sense of Presbyterian and reformed, the reformed and Calvinistic tradition going back to the Protestant Reformation. We ought to have good reformed Reformation worship. I believe that. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ came from God 2,000 years ago as the great reformer of Judaism. Long before the Protestant Reformation, there was the Christian Reformation. There was the Messianic Reformation. When Judaism as it was came to a halt and a new order, a new age, a new time dawned for us with the coming of Christ. He is our first great reformer. We love to look back to Calvin and Luther and Beza and all these wonderful men, some well-known, some lesser-known, but these wonderful men and many women as well in the Reformation, the 1600s, who were mightily used of God to do a work and a wonder that turned this whole world upside down. Had it not been for the work God did through them, we would be sitting in a... Who knows what kind of church, but it wouldn't be Protestant. It wouldn't be Protestant. And we thank God for that time. But long before them, the first reformer of Christianity was the Messiah, was Jesus himself. And he launched the Christian Reformation. Let's look at verses 19 and 20 of our passage. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and note verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and curtain, there's a reference back to the veil in the temple. Through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. He has opened up for us, it says in verse 20, a new and a living way. New is the opposite of old. Living is the opposite of dead. The new and living way is the way to go. The old dead way is a dead end. And this plugs into this to the author's whole argument for why, guys, don't go back to Christless Judaism. Don't go back to non-Christian Judaism. That's the dead, old way, the new and living way is open. Go this way, the way of Christ. Let's look at the larger context of Hebrews and see what he's getting at here. What's the old way? What's the old way? Let's back up to chapter 9, to the beginning of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. The author says, Now, even the first covenant, or first testament had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, we've been talking about the regulative principle. So, our our ears should be attuned to these words about regulation. Even the first covenant had a regulative principle. It had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, a holy place on the earth. Tabernacle in Hebrews. 
the tabernacle. Verse 2, for a, for a tent or tabernacle was prepared. And then he goes through the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place with a golden altar, etc., etc. And he goes through the furniture that was in the tabernacle that was used for old covenant worship. And he says at the end of verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And it's like, ooh, wish Hebrews was like 10 chapters longer so he could have gave us the details, but he didn't. But he goes through, these are the, this is the furniture, in the tabernacle, this was, these were the instruments of worship. It had a holy place and a most holy place with a curtain in between them. And in the most holy place, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that was the top, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the mercy seat. And that's where God's presence is supposed to dwell with His people, seated upon the throne of His mercy, a mercy seat, a mercy throne. And then the curtain separates because he's too holy. You can't come in there. Just the high priest one time a year could go in there and make one sacrifice and he had to get out. And they used to tie a little bell around his leg. And so if, and as he's walking around doing his service, ching, 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 they hear the little bell ringing. Well, if that bell stops ringing for too long, they're like, well, the holiness of God killed him. Let's, let's get him out. And there'd be like a rope tied to his leg. And just in case they had to pull him out because they can't go in there. They don't want to get struck down either. They understood there's a holy God in there. We don't come before his presence, just burst in, you know, throw the curtain open. Here I am, God, and get on his lap and high-five him. And They didn't think of God like that. The old covenant had this serious holiness code. And only the high priest once a year could go in there. And the rest of the services the rest of the year was on the outside. Inside the tabernacle, but not in the Holy of Holies, just in the holy place. Not the most holy place. Now he goes through what the furniture is, and in verse 6 he says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, the holy place, performing their ritual duties. Performing their liturgy. Performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, as we just said. And he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And then he says, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. First covenant worship, Old Testament worship, tabernacle worship with a tabernacle, a holy place, a most holy place, a curtain between them, all the furniture, the sacrificial system, the washings, the offerings, the priesthood, that whole big apparatus of worship. That's how liturgy was done. And the priest, the high priest, was the liturgist, the president of the liturgy, the one who oversaw the worship. He was the Old Testament worship leader. That's the old dead way. Because a time of reformation came when the Lord Jesus came and he changed these regulations. 
because they're for the old covenant. Jesus comes with a new covenant. And with a new covenant comes new regulations for worship. This goes back to our first sermon in this series, John 4.24. The time is coming and is now here when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father. A new location for worship, the whole earth. And if the temple is no longer the locus of worship, then the kind of worship that happens there gets changed too. We need new forms of worship, new regulations that match the new covenant realities, that focus on spirit and truth, not just the outward motions. There was one Reformed uh, pastor who said that Reformed worship, now he's talking about like Presbyterian-type Reformed worship. Reformed worship focuses on the mind and the intel- and the, sorry, the intellect and the conscience. The intellect, the mind, and the conscience, not the senses and the imagination. Old covenant worship was about five senses worship, incense and all the rest. Five senses, it was about your senses and your imagination. It was about pictures and symbolism and rites and rituals. And new covenant worship is just pared away all that extra stuff. And now we, t- we worship in spirit and in truth. We focus on the intellect, on our minds, and on our consciences, which doesn't leave our hearts behind. Now it's about what's happening on the inside of a worshiper, not just am I going through the right motions on the right day, in the right spot, with the right people. Not formalism and not traditionalism. Jesus changed all that old covenant worship. Now God put that in place, and it's what He wanted for a time, but it was never designed to be permanent. It was designed to point towards the one who was going to come and fulfill what all that symbolism was symbolizing, which is Christ and His redemption. So let's look then at the at the next part here. Not just the old way, Hebrews 9, 1 to, uh, uh, 1 to 10. Let's look now at the new way. What is this new and living way Christ has opened for us? Well, let's keep reading in the passage. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, that reformation that he brought, Then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ has offered himself his own blood. He says he went into the greater tabernacle. He didn't go into Moses' tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem. He went into heaven itself, the real holy place. Marched right up to the throne of the real living God in heaven above. 
and presented his sacrifice before him face to face, not just through a curtain on earth, but went through the veil into the very height of heaven itself. And there said, here is the blood of my sacrifice, which you required at my hands. See, I have done it all. And he presented his sacrifice there. And since a perfect sacrifice has been made, we don't need all the other sacrifices anymore. I mean, have you ever asked yourself, I mean, God tells us repeatedly about how to offer these animals in the Old Testament. Why, don't we, why, don't, why aren't we killing goats in here every week? I mean, thank, you know, thank the Lord we're not. <laughs> they get pretty messy. I mean, the carpet's already red. But I mean, why, why don't we do that anymore? It's horrifying, right? Killing animals and offering sacrifices. And if there was an altar here and there was a barbecue on it, like we just offered the goat and it was roasting for fellowship afterwards. <laughs> right? Why don't we do that? We don't need to anymore. It's not because there's not a temple. We don't have a place to do it. It's because... All of that sacrifice in the Old Testament was just telling you, God is going to give you the lamb you need. These are placeholders that are pointing you towards the time when the Messiah comes and he sheds his blood. He's the perfect sacrifice and we don't need to offer any more animals. So it's not that Christ abolished animal sacrifice and said stop doing that. It's that he fulfilled it. And so we don't need to continue it. It's been Fully accomplished, fulfilled. We don't have to have priests anymore who do these old things. There is a new and living way. Further in chapter 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that's not his own. For then he, Christ, would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ put an end to the sacrifices because he fulfilled them all. Further ahead in chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, at his liturgy, at his liturgical duties. Every priest stands daily at his liturgical service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this is why, because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, this is why earlier in the letter in chapter 8, uh, verses 1 and 2, the author says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have... We Christians, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister, a liturgist, a worship leader in the holy places, in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. 
You see, ultimately, brothers and sisters, Jesus is your minister, not me. Jesus is our minister. Jesus is our liturgist. Jesus is our true worship leader. Where is he leading us from? Where is he serving us from? Where is he ministering from? From the right hand of God. And he doesn't need to stand there and offer a bunch of priestly duties and sacrifices repeatedly over and over every week. He doesn't have to get up and represent his sacrifice to the Father. He doesn't have to keep doing all this extra stuff. He doesn't have to keep dying on a cross every week. No, no, no. He's seated. He worships from his throne. He leads us in worship from his throne. Because it's finished. There's nothing left for him to do for you, Christian. He has accomplished it all. He's brought the great reformation. And now our worship needs to conform to this new approach. We don't approach God the way we did before. We approach Him through the new and living way. Jesus has reformed the old liturgy and instituted the new liturgy, the new way of approach, which brings us back to our passage, verse 19. Therefore, brothers... After everything we've just seen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter those same holy places, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not bulls and calves and goats, but Jesus' blood, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, the flesh he offered and sacrificed for our sins. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Since Jesus has done all these things, therefore let us draw near. Let us come before God. Let us do our liturgy. Let us approach a holy God. These are the bases, the grounds upon which our liturgy must be based. We worship through our mediator today. We worship through a high priest, and it ain't the pastor. It's Christ. He's our high priest. So all of our liturgy, all of our worship, it's got to go in the name of Jesus and through Jesus. Why do we do all this stuff in the name of Jesus? Why do we end almost every prayer in the name of Jesus? Because he's the priest who takes our prayers and offers them in an acceptable way to God. Everything, all of our worship and service of God, all of our prayers and everything else, it goes through Him so it can be purified by His blood, it can be covered by His sacrifice, and it can be acceptable to God. And apart from Him, we are lost. Our worship is vain. And we have no hope. But through Christ, we have a new and living way to come to God and not to get crushed by His holiness but to be accepted as his son and daughter. Since, Hebrews says that three times in these, in these verses, 19 to 21. It says, since we have confidence. Oh, sorry, it says it two times. Since we have confidence, and since we have a great priest, let us draw near. This is the basis of our liturgy. And that brings us to our final point. Now, we're gonna, now we look at the pattern of worship that emerges from this gospel-based approach. What we get is a gospel-shaped liturgy. 
three times in the next couple verses, from verses 22 down through 24, three times in these verses, the author says, let us, let us, let us. In other words, therefore, this is what we ought to do. So what does it say? Three things he wants us to do to have gospel-shaped worship. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us come before God. Let us draw near, come into His presence to worship Him, and let us do so with a true heart that's full of the assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed pure. In other words, we need to come before God, sins forgiven, hearts cleansed, bodies sanctified. We come out of a sinful, evil, and defiled world. Six days we've been in that. And we come into God's presence. We come into His house, right? Verse 21, the house of God is mentioned. How do we come into God's house? We need, for lack of a better image, we need to wipe our feet at the door. We don't just come marching in. We have to come before Him with a recognition of who He is. He's the holy God, and we are sinful. And when we see Him in His holiness, we are reminded of our sins. But because we have a sacrifice and a priest who ushers us into God's presence, we come with confidence. We come with the assurance of faith. In other words, we come on the basis of the gospel. So we need to come in recognizing our sinfulness and asking God to wash us clean so that we can be acceptable in His sight. You see how it's shaped like the gospel? God is holy. We are sinners. We need to have our sins forgiven. Christ has died for our sins. We put our trust in Christ. His blood cleanses us. And now we are holy and pure and acceptable. So when we come into worship, there's just a, our entrance into God's presence is shaped like the gospel. God's our creator. We are fallen. He saves us through Christ. And we believe. And we receive his forgiveness. And so the entrance into worship ought to look like the gospel. We ought to acknowledge our sins before him. And then trust in Christ. So we come with assurance of faith. To get our sins forgiven. We come here to get our hearts clean. We come here to get our bodies, that is, our outward lives, sanctified and purified with the cleansing water of the Holy Spirit. This is indeed what James tells us to do in James 4.8. He says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you, and then repent. <laughs> That's James 4. Draw near to God, He'll draw near to you, and then you need to repent. <laughs> because we're sinful. And we need to acknowledge that when we come into His presence but we do it with assurance and confidence. The second thing is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We need to confess our hope in the Lord, in His presence, declare our faith in Him, 
Swear to him our oath of allegiance. Hold fast the confession that we make of Christ. And hold fast to our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we come here to be reminded of his promises and reminded of his faithfulness. And we do that when we read the scriptures and when we hear the word of God read and preached. We need to be reminded of his promises, reminded of his faithfulness. We can rehearse all of his faithfulness through history. We can reminisce on all of his mighty deeds. And we declare our faith in him. We put our trust in him. He speaks to us in his promises and in his faithfulness. And we respond with a confession of hope. So these are some ideas. These are some patterns for us to follow. These are some things that are exampled for us, exemplified for us, that we can observe happening in the New Testament, that the people who read this letter were trying to do when they got together. And we can say, all right, how can we make our liturgy look gospel-shaped like this? And then the third and final thing here is, verses 24 and 25, the third let us in the passage. Verse 24, and let us consider... Give thought to, think about how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he mentions not forsaking the public assembly. We know that's about worship. But that first part, verse 24, we often think about that in terms of our own discipleship and how we can, in our personal relationships... And our fellowship stir each other up. But that's a thing we can do in worship as well. Our worship should challenge us and stir us up as we sing and fellowship and pray and give and are with each other. Being here as we assemble together ought to involve some kind of stirring, some challenging to say, this is how God wants you to live, Christian. Go and do Because of the gospel, because of who he is, now live from that gospel. Be encouraged and keep the day that is to come in mind. Keep the the second coming in view. Keep the last day in your thoughts. Serve God unto that day when it comes. We come in here to get encouraged, to get stirred up, and then to stir each other up in our fellowship as a church. We stir up one another to go out at the end of the service and to serve God till He comes. Gospel-shaped liturgy. Liturgy trains us to be radically gospel-shaped people because our liturgy itself is gospel liturgy and it's gospel-shaped So when you come here to worship, ideally what's happening is you're getting walked through the gospel through the whole service. The whole service is telling you what the gospel is in the way it's laid out and in the way it's organized. I'll just give you one example of how not just the whole service, but pieces of the service can do that. I try to put, I call them little Easter eggs, little things you can find in the order of service. And if you look for patterns and connections in the bulletin, I've put little things in there most Sundays. You're like, hey, that, that, oh, those things kind of line up. Look, he was doing something. He, it was thought through. He thought about what he was doing. He didn't just flip open the hymnal and go, that one. <laughs> Last week, we sang three hymns, and those three hymns walked us through the gospel. 
The first hymn was a hymn about the triumphal entry. It was a Palm Sunday hymn. The second hymn was about the cross. Jesus paid it all. And then the third hymn was a hymn that was about the resurrection. But, it had, but the theme was worshiping the resurrected Christ. So last week, just in the selection of songs and in the order they were in, we were walking through the end of the life of Christ when he offered his sacrifice, which culminates in us worshiping the risen Christ. So there's, there's these little threads that we weave through a service. And you don't have to always see what they are because you're going through them even if you don't explicitly notice them. You're always week after week getting walked through the gospel. And if our worship is gospel shaped, you're, and you're here week after week, year after year, you're getting gospel shaped as you go through that liturgy. So that you go out a little bit more shaped like Jesus little bit more conformed to his image. We're not in the habit of microwaving your sanctification here. Right? It's slow cooker Christianity. You are getting just little by little each week, just a little bit more sensitive to sin, a little bit more conformed to the image of Christ. Liter- gospel-shaped liturgy trains us to be radically gospel-shaped people who then go live gospel-shaped lives. That's what Reformed liturgy is all about. The Protestant Reformation was about putting the gospel of Jesus front and center in everything we do, especially worship. And so our liturgy ought to preach the gospel so that we come away gospel-shaped, gospel-driven, radically Jesus-focused and God-centered. And if we get trained like that every week, not just in what's said, but in the shape of what we do, we will be edified We will grow. There will be learning and encouragement. There will be challenge and strengthening. And we will be the people God has called us to be. Worship is part of that process. We will meet those biblical expectations we looked at last week. We will conform to the pattern of the Bible. We will know God is pleased with our worship. And we'll know He's pleased with us as we go out from this place to live radically Jesus-focused, gospel-shaped lives. Worship is an essential part of your Christian life. And so we want to do it right. Because we want to please the Lord. So commit with me as a church that all we want to do, my style, my preference, my, how I grew up, what I want to do, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. We just want to do what Jesus wants us to do. And we just want to meet with Him on His terms. We want to be biblical in our worship. Let's commit to that. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed give our hearts and lives to you, not just the six days of the week, but the seventh, the holy day, the Sabbath day. We come in here and we want you to be Lord over our liturgy. We know you are our worship leader. You are the one who ministers in heaven. You offered your perfect sacrifice that covers all of our sins, that purchased for us this access into your presence. You are the one who ministers to us and gives us grace and blessing. And empowers us by your spirit to be the people you've called us to be. And to go out from this place and live like you've called us to live. Oh, help us to be committed to your word above all things. To be sold out to standing upon the biblical expectations and the biblical examples you give us in worship. Or give us in scripture for our worship. Help us to be more and more gospel shaped in our worship. More and more gospel shaped in our lives so that we can go out 
conformed to your image in this world, that we can be your people who bring great glory to you in all that we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.